Well, good evening again, listeners, and welcome to Carmelite Conversations. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here with you this uh, week. We have what we think and hope will be a wonderful show for you today. We're going to cover the Sacrament of Penance, and we have a special guest who I'll introduce in just a minute. But first, uh, let me reintroduce Francis Harry, my co-host, who's with me each week. Francis, how are you? Mm, I'm doing great. I hope you are. I hope everybody out there is feeling really blessed today. Francis and I are, of course, coming off our... Uh, uh, weekend once a month we have our Carmelite meeting and we had that just uh, yesterday so we have all the blessings and graces that come to us each week uh, both through the prayers and our opportunity for adoration it's a great uh, it's a great weekend for us uh, and always a great blessing so the timing of this show was terrific <laughs> absolutely uh, in addition we have with us today Michelle Foley Michelle is a graduate student at the International Marian Research Institute here in Dayton, Ohio. She is a, a student uh, in pursuit of a licentia in sacred theology with a focus in Mariology. Uh, but she also has her master's degree in theology, which I understand, Michelle, you got at the University of Dayton. I did. And she did some extensive work in the area of the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. And so when we met a number of weeks ago, of course, we see each other about uh, three times a week at Mass, uh, but we met and had the opportunity to speak about this. And I asked, I would actually accurately say, begged you to uh, participate, because this is such a timely and critical topic, uh, I think, for the Church today, the importance of reconciliation. So welcome, Michelle. Well, thank you so much for asking me. I I have to tell you that I'm um, a convert to the uh, idea of, of the sacrament of penance. When I decided to write about penance, um, actually several years ago for my master's program and then as I've continued my studies in the postgraduate area at the International Marian Research Institute, I had a very um, negative, if you want, uh, thoughts about the sacrament of penance. I thought, well, nobody's going. Why should we have it? Let's just do away with it. Sort of blend it into something else. Maybe make it part of the liturgy. I don't know. Did you talk to the Holy Father about that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I kept it to myself until one of my mentors on an elevator said, Well, Michelle, what do you think now? And I said, Keep it. <laughs> he said, Keep it or throw it. And I said, Keep it. Well, we're glad to hear that the decision yeah. made, was made to keep it. Uh, as I said, I, I um, um, think that this is a very timely, a very important topic, one we need to wrestle with. But before we do that, we're going to wrestle with uh, the challenges of, uh, of uh, putting on a radio program by making sure that we cover ourselves in prayer. Michelle, would you mind leading us in prayer this evening? I'll be ha very happy to do that. We have the prayer that Jesus gave us, and if we could all think about this as you hear our voices, I know that we have many listeners throughout the country and perhaps throughout the world. So let us pray the prayer that Jesus gave us which is one of forgiveness, and that is the Our Father. Our, Our Father, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Michelle. You're welcome. I want to open with a quote from uh, 
from John Paul II. Seems an appropriate way to begin. Uh, It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's important, and I'll put it in context. Uh, In his 1987 visit to the United States in a uh, public address that he gave in San Antonio. My home state, well, my baby's home state. (laughs) I have to say that. And San Antonio is a great Catholic city, by the way, for those who may not have had the pleasure of visiting there. But uh, this is what he said in 1987. It is by confession that the power of the redeeming blood of Christ is made effective in our personal lives. Therefore, again, I ask all my brother bishops and priests to do everything possible to make the administration of this sacrament a primary aspect of their service to God's people. There can be no substitute for the means of grace which Christ himself has placed in our hands. The Second Vatican Council never intended that this sacrament of penance be less practiced. What the Council expressly asked was that the faithful might more easily understand the sacramental signs and more eagerly and frequently have recourse to the sacrament. Those are the words of our uh, uh, beloved John Paul II. Uh, And, of course, uh, today... uh, Holy Father Benedict XVI has the same theme uh, and reiterates this message of the importance of the sacrament. And so I'm going to begin with what is probably a theme for this uh, program, Michelle, and a difficult question I'll accept, but one I think we have to wrestle with, and that is, why have we lost our appreciation for the sacrament of penance? I can only speak for myself as somebody who uh, attends the sacrament with some frequency today, though I didn't for many years of my life. Um, and I see, though I uh, uh, witness many people attending uh, Mass, and certainly even daily Mass, uh, far fewer are the numbers that you see waiting in line for the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Why do you think that is today? I think, really, there's a loss of understanding of the sacrament and sacraments in general and what they are, number one. Number two, uh, this is my personal opinion. It is not anybody else's. But there is a, a loss of the sense of sin. Mm, yes. We are, uh, my my husband and I have this uh, little saying around the house, is it more me than we, or is it more we than me? And, mm. and in making family decisions, we have to look at the family, our family, and say, is this good for all of us, or is it only good for me? Right. So what has happened over a number of years is that we have become very me-oriented, very I-oriented. If it's good for me, then it's, you know, I don't really care. But with the church, I think people have lost the sense of sin. They've lost the sense of com- community in the church. And they've, they've lost the, the, um, the awareness of the power of the sacraments. And, I I wasn't I was half joking and but I w- really wasn't when I said what I thought about penance. I knew very little about it, and I was very upset with myself as I began to further investigate the sacrament and the history of the sacrament, which is where I began. And it is a fascinating development over a long period of time. And I'd have to add that I think Saint Teresa of Avila, our dear Carmelite saint and um, doctor of the church, she would say we have lost the sense of the dignity of our soul. Absolutely. 
I think that's an inc uh, incredibly important point. Of course, John Paul II is a great teacher mm -hmm. of the inherent dignity of the human person. Mm -hmm. And we have to link our understanding of the value of the sacrament of reconciliation to reclaiming the dignity of the human person. I think so many times, and I can speak again personally, as, as I suspect we all will here, and that doesn't in any way invalidate it. It is the Catholic experience speaking through this. Um, I was raised a cradle Catholic. I was taught uh, the importance of the sacrament of reconciliation. I attended it mm -hmm. uh, up until probably middle high school, and then when it became more my uh, uh, decision as to whether to continue, I don't know that there was necessarily a deliberate decision not to, I simply didn't, mm -hmm. and this was true for many years until uh, later in life I began to raise my own children and had to face the prospect of their attending reconciliation and had to wrestle with what that meant to me. It was um, so at that point, I think, where I realized um, either you're in the game that we call Catholicism or you're not, and oh. if you're in the game, it's all seven, right? It's all seven sacraments. To, to some extent, we can get into a debate about uh, each of us having a vocation, our vocation is a sacrament, and so forth, but... So we, is, we can't be a cafeteria Catholic, right? We, we, it's the whole ball of wax, right? Right. You cannot uh, pick and choose, obviously, the sacraments. But I, I want to get back to this point, Michelle, about um, you've got a, 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 and I had the benefit of reading some of your graduate work, uh, you've got a statement in there, of course, it's from the Catechism, about uh, the sacrament being the second plank of grace. Explain that uh, in the context of baptism. Well, you were mentioning that uh, you you had a retreat or you had um, fellowship and community with your fellow Carmelites. So what we had this past Sunday was the experience of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost. Jesus brought us the Holy Spirit as in, in baptism and at Pentecost. He, Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit in baptism, and at baptism that begins our community, our familyhood, if you will, with God and with Jesus. So what happens? Baptism takes away all of our sins. It does not take away the propensity, if you will, our humanness, which means we can't say it's not our fault. We still we have, have the free choice. We have what? the inclination too right. that we still have to fight. You've got in fact, directly from the Catechism, I'm citing the references you right. provided. Uh, nevertheless, the Catechism states the new life received in Christian initiation has not abolished the frailty and weakness of the human nature, nor the inclination to sin that tradition calls concupiscence. So, right. baptism doesn't completely eliminate That's our, right. our propensity for uh, for sinfulness. So. We have free choice. Now, would Jesus leave us alone? Would he leave us helpless? No, he would not. And so he sent the Holy Spirit again in the sacrament of penance and said, I will give you. And the second plank really comes from when travel was by ship a great deal. And there were shipwrecks because of storms. We have car wrecks now, but they had shipwrecks. And there would be planks floating in, in the sea, and people could grab onto that plank. That's the, the image and where they got that image. So for the forgiveness of sin through the sacrament of penance is our second plank. So and the first plank, then, was baptism. baptism. Okay. All right. Go. And we, we never lose our sonship or ch uh, childhood 
you know, from our familyhood from Jesus, if unless we say, I reject it, and we'll get to sin later. But we have this second plank, and so that restores the grace that came about uh, and takes away our sin uh, in, uh, after we've been forgiven in, in the sacrament of penance. Well, Michelle, I want to go back and do a little bit of the history, because okay. <clears throat> I think it's important to set the context of what we'll discuss later. And uh, I should be upfront as I was uh, with each of you before we began the uh, program and say that I have a bit of an agenda here, and that is to get this message out on the value, the importance of the Sacrament of Reconciliation, to help people understand not only its sacramental value, but also its psychological value in the context of our modern language, uh, and also its communal value. I think there's a propensity to think of uh, the Sacrament of Reconciliation as very individual, very singular. Good point. Uh, and, and, of course, we know there's a communal aspect to it. So uh, I'll leave that out there as a teaser and let you get back to it. But let's just do a little bit of the history. Um, Tertullian, the, the Church Father, uh, of course, uh, addressed at some point this concern in the early Church that you just raised, the dual planks, there was a belief in the early church that post-baptism, if a person sinned, all could be lost, right? Right, that's and, right. And so we had to overcome that. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, Tertullian and many other people, St. Jerome, St. Augustine, um, many, many other fathers of the church, um, said there is this second chance or repeated chance. And in the beginning of there, right after Jesus died, remember, people were thinking that he would come back tomorrow. You know, I'm gone, I'll see you later, be back tomorrow. And as time went on, uh, that first several years, he didn't come back, and they're, well, now what do we do? And and, uh, and I'm, I realize I'm oversimplifying it, but what happened even in, in a larger context was that more people were turning to Christianity. They were turning to the beliefs of Jesus. And they weren't just Jewish people. They were people from all over the, the Mediterranean and Africa, and even uh, later on uh, the, uh, the European continent. So what happened? They had to, uh, 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 they didn't have to, but as time went on, pe- there were persecutions, and people were persecuted, and uh, they denounced the church under under great stress. They were they were. I mean, anything we see on TV is just like it was back then in the early church. People denounced their faith. Well, after the persecutions were over, they wanted to come back to the church. They said, "I didn't really mean it. I I I did it under duress." Yeah, they were afraid. So there were there there were priests and actually bishops at that time that said. You will be forgiven. Come to me, and we will we will have the sacrament of penance. And um, some of those people were denounced, and said, this is the wrong thing. But as time went on, the benefit of Jesus, retur- or rather the Holy Spirit returning and giving the opportunity for conversion and, and contrition and penance was was through the sacrament of penance. So the sacrament of penance. Developed. It's just like when you are born, you don't know everything you know today. You know some things, but um, you know things things evolve with the sacrament. So as we're born into the spiritual life, right, uh, and many of us may have that experience late in life. Uh, we may convert 
uh, late in life. We may have a reconversion late in life. We might have many reconversions. The point being, Hope so. <laughs> there is the need for this ongoing process exactly. of spiritual development. A child doesn't grasp everything on right. day one, as you said. At the same time, you mentioned uh, St. Augustine. St. Augustine is the one who introduced the idea of uh, repentance and conversion right. and the sacrament as a process of healing. That's right. And, of course, the Catechism picks up on this as well, where it says, and it's talking about this second conversion. The second conversion, post-baptism, post the multiple sins, perhaps, in mm-hmm. some cases, mm-hmm. the second conversion is an uninterrupted task for the whole Church who, clasping sinners to her bosom, at once holy and always in need of purification, follows constantly the path of penance and renewal. So this introduces this idea, uh, launched from uh, St. Augustine, that penance is a process exactly. of continuous conversion and continuous healing through continuous purification. Exactly. And we got to remember that healing comes from God and, and our being receptive to his healing hand and our responding favorably to this call. To that's healed. right. And that's where we began with the idea of prayer and the communication back and forth between us and God, our community and God, meaning the church. It's so critically important, and we understand, you know, you, you might wrestle, and I appreciate that even our, our listeners might wrestle with this idea, well, why wouldn't the Holy Spirit, who we know guides the church, have simply instituted that understanding at the beginning so we wouldn't have had this confusion around the need for continuous repentance? My own personal belief is that understanding that the process of conversion, of purification, is a consistent healing process, that it doesn't happen overnight, saves us from the misguided perception that my salvation is based on simply an acknowledgement, mm-hmm. an intellectual acquisition to right. a truth. Exactly. Our faith is more than that. Our right. faith is more than an intellectual acquisition to truth. It is a process of purification, uh, of growing in love, ultimately, mm-hmm. as we the Carmelites uh, certainly uh, profess, as do many others, uh, but that process suggests it can't simply be done by raising my hand and saying a, a, a creed. Right, the, your life and your actions have to mirror the effect of or, or the intention of your heart. Exactly. And even if you have the good fortune of being, quote, born into the faith, there are, you didn't stop there. Right. You know, did you stop at the kindergarten? Did you stop at fifth grade? Did you stop at twelfth grade? Did you stop uh, telling your spouse or your other family members how much you love them? Did you stop growing in knowing them and yourself from 10 years ago to now? Well, just to close out on the on the historical aspect, because I, I, as I say, <clears throat> I want to sort of set the table for the sacrament today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do know in the history of the Church, the sacrament has gone through some development, and I want to touch on something you had in your paper. Uh, early in the Church, there were very um, elaborate uh, manuals mm-hmm. for priests for conducting the sacrament. Uh, not only the actual uh, dialogue back and forth with the penitent, but the penances that could mm-hmm. be leveled against a, a, a particular uh, individual, and you refer to the tariff penances. Right. Talk a little bit about the tariff penances and, the, and where that fits in the that, history of the church. That was a a very small part of the of the um, uh, process of the the sacramental de- the development of the history of penance 
But I always think that the Irish were very intelligent and well-educated. And um, so as the faith grew in Ireland and in the Irish uh, Isles, they needed to have something where the the priests who were traveling from one town to another, because they did not have the monastery uh, type of, of towns as they, they did later on, they had traveling priests. And so what they needed to do was to have books that were written, they were called the penitentials, that gave them guidance on, you know, how many things they had to do, how many prayers they had to say. And the, the Irish people were very much um, uh, payment of, of, of things that uh, they had done to each other. For example, if one man from a family stole five sheep, then that man had to pay that back to the other family uh, and then take care of that family for a very long time, maybe five years. So that might have been something that was levied. So we can think of it as a tax, but it was a way to be consistent with the types of of, uh, penances that were given to the people because they were traveling. They were traveling. Now, here's the interesting dichotomy. Today, most of us get by with five Our Fathers and three Hail Marys, or, you know, sometimes you have a more uh, uh, creative penance, and and I've had many of these. We can share our experiences, and I invite our callers to do that as well. uh, I've been given the sacrament, uh, uh, penance, for example, go and do something nice for someone today, and it has to be done today, or mm-hmm. uh, the, the more creative ones. But the interesting dichotomy of this uh, period of the tariff penances, which we've left, right? I mean, we don't think that way about uh, penances anymore, um, is that we were somewhat misguided in, in thinking that by uh, sort of setting everything right with the world, we were doing the good thing. And that became almost too much the focus. I understand in part this is why we left the tariff penances. It became too much the focus that I'm sort of setting the world right. The irony is that today, though they're not prevalent, we don't think as much about now having to set things right with regard to our penances. The three, our fathers or Hail Mary seems sufficient, but we've not really grasped the reality that we also need to set things right in the world. Isn't that the case? That's true, but uh, a little bit more about the penitentials. They, they, um, prior to then, penance was done over a long period of time. It might have taken 20 years. It might have, that person may have been um, uh, barred from going to communion for 20 years. They may have said, okay, now you ha- you're allowed to pray outside the church. And by praying outside the church, everyone who went into the liturgy would be praying for him. They wouldn't know what the sin was that they were praying about, but they knew the person. Then as maybe five years would go by and they would be able to stand in what we now know as the gathering space or the narthex, and they could listen to what was going on in the liturgy. And then five more years. So with the... the uh, they would go on and on until the end of the penance, which could be a very long time, and then the bishop would have to provide the the um, absolution. Well, I want to pick up on this point and uh, talk about uh, the uh, experience that still exists today. And you mentioned Ireland. Of course, it's in Ireland. We'll, we'll come back with that after the break. But uh, then we'll move on to the role of penance today, sacrament of reconciliation today. 
Again, uh, listeners, you're listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home.
welcome back, listeners, to Carmelite Conversation. Well, Michelle, before the break, we were talking about the tariff penances, and I said, uh, and I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with this, uh, even today in uh, modern-day Ireland, there is a place that one can go and experience uh, something like the tariff penances. It's a uh, uh, retreat island called Station Island. In fact, I uh, downloaded some information on it, the practice uh, of the tariff penances actually exist today on an island off the coast of Ireland, Station Island, uh, St. Patrick's Purgatory, it's called. Uh, according to the legend, the site dates from the 5th century when Christ showed St. Patrick a cave, sometimes referred to as a pit on Station Island, that was an entrance to hell. Its importance in medieval times is clear from the fact that it is mentioned clearly in the text from as early as 1185 and shown on maps from all over Europe as early as the 15th century. It is an, the only Irish site dedicated on Martin de Benheim's world map of 1492. Hmm. Uh, there's no evidence that the pilgrimage to St. Patrick's Purgatory was ever interrupted for any period of time. It continues even today. Uh, after almost one and a half thousand years, uh, the main pilgrimage season begins in late May, early June, and ends in mid-August on the 15th, the Feast of the Assumption of Mary. It's a three-day pilgrimage open to pilgrims of all religions uh, who must be at least 15 years of age in good health and able to walk and kneel unaided because you do a great deal of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, pilgrims who should begin fasting at the previous midnight assemble at the visitor center on the shore of Laoderg, I'm probably saying that wrong, early in the day, uh, and from there a boat ferries them to the island. So even today, if you care to participate, and mm-hmm. you said, Michelle, that it is an ambition of yours to go and visit Station Island. I, I would like to see it. I'm I'm very much a person that likes to see. If I don't get to, then I, I I have great comfort in the fact that I can look it up on the internet or look at a map. But um, having been to Ireland twice now, uh, I would li- I would like to see that. Um, and where uh, there there's another part of the of the area where Saint Columban, who was uh, one of Saint Patrick's uh, monks, who went out and then went forward and onward to uh, to Europe and was, and I can't remember the name of that island, but they were very influential. They were, they were very, very influential in spreading the faith, and um, we talked about the tariff penances, and, and one thing I wanted to say about that, just to end the tariff penances, is that... Um, we mentioned the, the the many years of penance that people were expected to go through, and many people put that off until the moment of death, so um, because they didn't want to have to suffer for many years. So when the Irish came along, they didn't have any knowledge about this, so they they adapted. Um, and you the, mean that they would put off the baptism? They, they no, they would put off going to penance. To the oh, okay. sacrament for okay. many, you know. Oh, because they'll get a penance that might involve twenty right. years right. of. Uh, and so they'd wait life. until the hour of death to repent, and they'd they'd be forgiven. They knew they would be, okay. and they would be sorry. But um, Ireland had uh, a different situation, as did other parts of the world, and so that's how the the penances, the tariff penances, got started. The priest did not want to leave the person with. Um, uh, many penances, so they were given those penances to be done immediate, uh, to be done after the absolution. 
see the absolution in the early days came after the penance. This way, the absolution came before the penance was completed. So they that's, that was another thing about the Irish. But that's... that's I do know in the history of the Church there was that uh, time when people would put off being baptized. Now, these are adults, obviously, right. who are converting. Mm-hmm. They would put off their baptism because they thought, well, I'll be baptized when I'm sick and on my deathbed exactly. because I'm going to be absolved and immediately I'll enter into right. heaven. Of course, it misses the point, doesn't yeah. it? That Big time. Our, our, our uh, uh, you know, reason for conversion and entering exactly. the Church is to be perfected in love, not right. simply to receive the sacrament right. of baptism. Yeah, and we don't want to wait to learn how to love better, do we? Don't we want to learn how to love better right now? <laughs> Life will be better as we love better. I think the the zeal, not having lived at that time, but the zeal that was expected and the total commitment to Christianity, which some people might have thought of as, as a very difficult thing with no support, but they had the support of, the community, and they had. That's why they might have put it off. I don't know. Yeah. But now, people today, they put it off today. So why do they put it off today? What going uh, going oh, to reconciliation yeah. or confession? I don't think that it's talked about. I think one of the things that uh, we, one of the gifts we have from Vatican II, is the uh, ability to pray together in community before we go to confession, and that's why we have the opportunity to, in many churches to have a communion service, a communion liturgy during Advent, and then again during Lent uh, before Easter. So we have that, but we, we have the support of the community, we have the prayers of the church, we have uh, the priests available, but we, we always have the sacrament itself intact, the privacy the one-on-one, because God came to us and uh, came in relationship. You know, he came in a family. You know, we could say, well, if our relationship with God is uh, mine alone and nobody else's, just me and Jesus, why did Jesus come in a family? Why, Why did he have friends? Why did he live in Nazareth? Why did he live where he did? Why did he minister to all these people if he was just? Why didn't he just speak to everybody individually in their minds? Right, because we have our we have our personal sin, but that personal sin affects the, the whole world. Actually, the community at large. Well, so it's th- important. That's actually a great segue, and it's a point I wanted to uh, draw from the uh, the uh, prep that you gave me before our uh, program. And I thought this was a very important point, of course, drawn from the Catechism again. Uh, I'll read your. Uh, rewrite of it, and then we'll draw it from the Catechism. The forgiveness of our sins is linked to our forgiveness of the sins committed against us by our brothers. And the Catechism, uh, catechism I'm, I'm sorry, says, linking our forgiveness of one another's offenses to the forgiveness of our sins that God will grant us, i.e. the forgiveness. This is so critically important, and it helps us to understand the nature of the communal nature of reconciliation. We are forgiven or held accountable to the extent that we hold others accountable or that we grant mercy. This is such an important teaching within the Church that I don't think is adequately communicated uh, and therefore adequately understood. God looks to us to be merciful. The the story in the the New Testament about the judge who was forgiven by his master and then goes out and beats his servant, 
without much mercy, um, is, is the perfect story here to emphasize this point. But if we think that, for example, though the Church says once a year reconciliation is sufficient, if that's giving us sufficient strength in the sacrament to be merciful, terrific. For many of us, certainly for myself, I know it's not. Uh, I need to be reconciled more often than that. Monthly. I, monthly confession yeah, is a really good idea. <laughs> monthly is, is, of course, recommended in, in uh, many circles. Uh, but the, the point, again, I want to go back to that we point we begin the program with, and that was this idea of there's a sacramental element. You've fleshed that out, I think, quite uh, well, this second conversion. There's right. a psychological, which is the individual. We haven't gotten to the full detail of that. But this communal aspect of granting mercy that we will be given mercy is so critically important. Well, let's look at let's look at what scripture has to say in Luke. Um one of them. Um uh in Luke Luke is a wonderful person to read. He talks about um following Christ and then in Luke chapter it looks like 15, the lost sheep, the lady who lost the coin in her house. Um, she swept the house and light a, lit a lamp, trying to find. But the one I like uh, to illustrate how God forgives us is the man had two sons, the prodigal son in chapter 15, verse 11, I think it's through uh, 24, 24 yeah. where the young man took everything that he had. And, and how many of us at one time have had uh, maybe teenagers come to us or young adults and say, say, uh, I, I'm going to go now and thanks so much and um, give me whatever you were going to give me when you die and um, I'm going to go on my way. Well, he went on his way and look what happened to him. But then what happened? He he suffered. He He had to do degrading things and his father welcomed him back. Now, the father didn't just welcome him back. The whole family, the whole household welcomed him back. And sometimes I associate myself with the brother who stayed home, like, hey, what about me? And the, the God says, you know, you were with me all the time. I never forgot about you. You're with me. But please be advised that this person is somebody that we need to help, and in helping him, you will help yourself. So we have the prodigal son, the lost sheep, so we are always forgiven. There is nothing on this earth that God cannot forgive. But we have to be ready and humble, as Jesus was humble, to say, I have done this thing, and do it to somebody who's trained who has that authority handed down to him from the apostles through Jesus to forgive our sins and to understand and to give us the absolution that's so necessary. We have a lot of people who who go, well, I'm going organic, you know, okay, so you're going to go organic. I'm a vegan, okay, be a vegan. But what are we putting in our our soul? Are we putting that organic? And and I, I I read it, and I thought, oh, did I read that, or did I just write it? This is, God was so smart when he developed all of these concepts or, or gave us the ability to think about them, because this is 
part of that organic whole where we're given that other chance, that boost, that grace, really, that moment in time where we can reestablish a stronger relationship with God. And how do we do that with another person? You know, you bring up two very interesting points, and I suspect that these are, to some extent, the extremes of the responses that uh, somebody might share or might wrestle in their own heart and mind with, with this question, why do I not go to reconciliation, or why do I not take more frequent advantage of it? And you raised one earlier, uh, and I think that's the person who doesn't necessarily see the value in it, or once a year is sufficient, which, mm-hmm. again, in fairness, the Church says it is, mm-hmm. uh, but, but they're not frequent partakers of the gifts mm-hmm. of reconciliation. The other extreme, though, would be this person of fear. fear, somebody who's either afraid of the process or of sharing those intimate uh, failings that we all have. We're mm-hmm. all members of the human race, and we all have these failings sharing them, the need to share them with another human being, yeah. albeit persona Christe, but a, another human being who's going to accept and understand and listen. But no, but no now that this is the real person I am. That fear, I think, keeps so many away from, reconci- from active reconciliation. They may mask it by the contention, oh, it's only sufficient or necessary once a year, and we question um, you know, whether, in fact, Many of our church members are even taking advantage of the gift that once a, a year. Right, because, but, you know, if, if we die, we don't know when we're going to die. Um, if we only did that once a year, geez, that might be 12 months ago. And, wow, look at the condition of my soul. Because, you know, as our scripture tells us, you know, even the good man sins seven times a day, right? Right. And so, you know, I think one of the aspects of confession or reconciliation that's often overlooked is the grace not only of the forgiveness and the purifying of your soul again, but of the strengthening of the grace that will help you combat so that you don't sin again. And when you're out of sin, we have less sin, and you grow in your love and you grow in your charity, then you make the world a much better place. And that's what we need. We, we need more love. Yeah. I think the Marianists and many other people, many other congregations and, and secular institutes have a wonderful outlook on life, uh, and that is to make where they live the very best place that they can make it. Make it the most beautiful, make it the most charitable, make it the most welcoming. And I think about that when I think about uh, uh, the sacrament of penance. Um, It's part of the conversion process. Remember, we have, I am sorry for what I have done. So what's the, the flip side of that? Okay, I'm sorry, now what? I want to do better. I want to do, I want to grow. Con- uh, confession, I have acknowledged my sin to a representative of my brothers and sisters in the faith, the church, to God first, and then receive that absolution from God, and then re- the, the reconciliation and the willingness to do the penance, which means part of that conversion process. And so I've, I've had people, one lady who I, I spoke with at length said, well, I haven't been to church in 35 years. If, if I went to church, they would call the police and the church would fall down. And I said, honey, they would be so happy. You don't have to tell anybody how long it's been. 
just show up. The, the alcoholics have a, have a, a wonderful saying that's just, just show up. Half of life is just showing up. And another person, a, a guy, said to me, oh, I, I couldn't go to church. They'd know, they'd, know, they'd know me. They'd know what my sins were. And I said, honey, you, nobody would know. Nobody would know. That's the other gift we have of the, of the uh, sacrament of penance, that inviolate seal of confidentiality. When I was a therapist uh, in another life and working as a, a social worker, that was one of the things that was paramount, was confidentiality and never, ever violating that confidentiality. Well, times that, times a thousand million, and that's the, the vow that the priest takes. So we, we have those three things. Let's talk about that issue of confidentiality for a minute, because it goes to another point that was in the paper that you provided, mm-hmm. and I think it's important and it's certainly pertinent for our um, a dynamic political environment, especially for Catholic politicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the phrases we talked about before the uh, program began, John 2023, 20, mm-hmm. whosoever sins ye forgive, they are forgiven. Whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Uh, this is the power of the priesthood in Persona Christi, the power of the Church to uh, retain or to forgive. Um, And in our difficult political environment where we have so many, uh, even Catholic politicians, who in a very public way, of course, uh, seem to be at odds with the Church, there's an issue with regard to um, reconciliation, even with distribution of the Eucharist. And I think Regardless of where you stand on the political issue, I will say up front, I think it's unnecessary for us to engage in these debates in a public way. I don't think it's something the media should be picking up on. But as it regards reconciliation, we have to remember that the Church's goal is to reconcile the person. And so we may say, well, gee, I find this political Catholic's perspective on this offensive, or I fully support their position on that. I don't care where you stand. The point is, it's the Church's goal in all cases to reconcile. And I believe it is the responsibility and the authority rests with the bishop to make those decisions. So when we talk about reconciling and we talk about the, uh, uh, you know, uh, mercy. well, the mercy, but the, the secure nature, mm-hmm. if you will, all of, right. the, uh, mm-hmm. of the penance box, uh, then reconciliation uh, act of reconciliation. I think it also has to play out in these political uh, debates in a way that we have to acknowledge and recognize the Church's role and the bishop's responsibility is to reconcile the person. We need not be getting into these debates about where no. somebody stands on these No, it, I, I just say I, I cannot judge that person. It's not in, that's not my role. That's not your role. That's not anybody else's role. And so they have to go their way, whatever that way is. Now, that's, that's all I'll say. It's just not my, not in my place to judge them except to say, you know, you have to, you have to go your way and find, find yourself. Yeah, I, and I think it's unfortunate, regardless of uh, the, the, as I say, political persuasion really well, shouldn't play into it. This is a, right. uh, an issue between that individual and their priest or in their bishop, uh, and unfortunately in many cases it does find itself in the public uh, the public uh, it debate. does especially if they're they go to communion and somebody else says no you can't go that's not to be done in a public yeah. situation Th- this uh, back to the process of conversion that we talked right. about before 
I want to talk a little bit about now this third element, this individual, the psychological element mm-hmm. uh, of healing, of conversion, of deepening our relationship with the Lord. We've talked a little bit about the sacramental forgiveness. We've talked about the communal. On a very individual level, though, let's talk about the penances themselves first, mm-hmm. um, and then let's talk about the effect of those. You, you mentioned your background as a counselor. What are the forms that the, the penances uh, themselves often take, it, it, either uh, individually or those directed by a priest? Well, again, from the catechism and from the rites of the Catholic Church, uh, the rites for penance, it does say that it recommends uh, that the person will probably be given prayer, number one, prayer, to communicate with himself and God, and <clears throat> then acts of mercy, and that could be working in a soup kitchen once a month or once a week for a time, uh, going through a closet and giving away things that they don't use anymore but have accumulated and are still usable. It could be if they, again, uh, very much according to what that person is able to do, the priest will take that into consideration. But acts of charity, acts of mercy, and then alms, prayer, fasting, and then fasting. Because, again, it's organic, so it's um, body, mind, and spirit, as well as God community, you know, God working in the community. And all of these, of course, are, uh, well, many of them are external acts, or they're physical in the case of fasting. But ultimately, they are designed to lead to the conversion of the heart. Right. Right? Right. And again, I think so many people uh, who shy away from the sacrament uh, misperceive that it's ultimate objective is, in fact, reconciliation, that conversion of the heart and the deepening of the relationship and the increase in love, Francis, that you talked about earlier. These are the reasons for uh, participation in the sacrament, which we may have lost in the teaching. One last question, and I want to get uh, um, this, uh, uh, your perspective on this, and that is, what do we do? We've been away for a long time, example. Someone's been away for a long time, and they're thinking about, they're debating. Maybe that's one of our listeners. All right, I need to go back to confession. How do I prepare myself? Well, one one way one can prepare is to go to Scripture. That's the first thing. Go to Scripture and read some of the things in St. Luke for yourselves. Go and read those that I read about the prodigal son. Read about the lady who lost her her money and was looking for it. Go and read perhaps um, St. John uh, about the Good Shepherd. No, we don't have any shepherds, but we have people that, who we know who are excellent mentors, who are excellent people to model ourselves after. And I think of those people as shepherds. So... Go to Scripture and then look at the Ten Commandments and look at the uh, Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. What have I done? Have I supported the Beatitudes or have I worked against the Beatitudes? And the capital sins, you know. Capital sins, yeah. And everybody goes, well, I never killed anybody, so okay. But... But what if, what else have we done? We killed their spirit, yeah. maybe. So we got to look at it at a deeper level. There's always exactly. more levels. Peel that onion, right? <laughs> well, and that's it. The Lord is constantly through this process of conversion and purification, bringing us back uh, and deepening that understanding of our of our human failing. I want to close this evening with a prayer. And Michelle, I want to thank you first of all for joining us this oh, evening. Thank Very you. good conversation. Thank Very you for insightful. Me. Appreciate 
the depth of knowledge and understanding that you bring to this. And I'm going to close us with uh, actually the prayer uh, that we uh, we say after uh, reconciliation is part of the process of reconciliation. We'll do this uh, as a collective. My God, we are sorry for our sins with all of our heart. In choosing to do wrong and failing to do good, we've sinned against you, whom we should love above all things. We firmly intend, with the help of your grace, to do penance, to sin no more, to avoid whatever leads us to sin. Our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, suffered and died for us. In his name, dear God, have mercy on us. Well, thank you again, listeners, for joining us for another Carmelite conversation. We look forward to uh, getting back with you again next week, where we'll pick up on the seventh dwelling of Teresa of Avila's interior castles. God bless.